When you think of all the intersectionality of like relationships intersect with money and emotions do, your job does, your physical activity does, your intellectual capacity does, your spirituality for me, right? Theology yeah. was like so, so important in my money narrative thus far and right. still is important, but I look at it from a different lens than I have in the past. And understanding that my faith journey impacts my financial journey, good or bad. Understanding that there's so many elements that are happening and money can amplify, good or bad. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Lindsay Lewis to the show. She is a CFP professional, and she is cultivating curiosity about money. And let me tell you, I, Lindsay and I have had a handful of conversations. She is so smart, so talented, and so compassionate about the field of personal finance, and personal journey. And it's not just about what other people should be doing, but she walks the talk. She's on her own journey, exploring her own relationship with money. So she's here today to share some of her insight and wisdom. Lindsay, so glad to have you here on the show. I'm thrilled to be here, Ed, and look forward to our conversation. So let's start right out the gate. Cultivating money curiosity. What the heck does that mean? Yes, broad, vague, but it really comes from growing up. I grew up in a community where theology was very part of the culture aspect. And for women, they didn't necessarily deal with finances beyond like budgetary things. And so what I really want to do and instill in different folks is just cultivating that money curiosity where you are equalizing what money looks like for you. And I do this in different facets. So I do it through helping influence finance for women. I do this through my work at the American College where I'm the director of the Center for Women and I help empower women through their educational and career journeys. And I do this through collaborations, uh, whether that's content or building up different types of communities. So really what it stems around is I want people to feel inspired and to figure out their money story. So what can you tell us a little bit more about your money story? You've already kind of just went straight for us and said theology was like kind of the way it framed things. But what was the theology that was framing your childhood and experience and understanding of money? Absolutely. This one goes back to my upbringing. So I grew up in a Mormon household. I am one of seven children. I have six brothers, no sisters. I come from a yours, mine, and ours family. So my dad had two kids, then my mom had one kid, and then they got married, and I'm the first of their kids together. And so when we think about money, and when I think about my earliest 
memories of money, it really stems around tithing, right? So in the Mormon community and then in the Mormon faith, typically you are paying 10% of your growth earned income, depending on however you want to skin the cat. Um, But Uh you pay part of your abundance back to the institution. And so I remember from a very young age, right? I would get money for birthdays or getting good grades or whatever. And I would be paying my 10% towards tithing. And then I would be saving and then I'll be spending. And given kind of the, the gender dynamics between my parents. So my father was income producing until I was about 10 or 12. And then based on life situations, my mom became the breadwinner in our household, which in today's culture, definitely not seen as negatively or differently. But at that time, having an income producing woman outside of the home was a little bit foreign. And Uh so it really helped me like view the importance of having an education and what money looked like in our household. But even though my mom had an education, she spent many years not income producing. And I use not income producing rather than not working because anyone who's stayed at home with seven kids is <laughs> the hardest working person ever. I so I love it. what I witnessed is that though my mom, very talented, was still what I would consider like underemployed based on her skill sets. And so monetarily, I would put us in like a non-affluent Um, way. And so there were times in our lives where we were living off of the church welfare program, which is like their food service. So there's one benefit there where, you know, I am paying my tithing and just in case something bad happens, I can get my food or my needs met, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But I would see my parents prioritize like paying tithing over saving for retirement or things like that. So Mm -hmm. Growing up in that household where money was like a a topic of conversation from a young age, both my parents are very like money conversant in the way of they would show me like, here are our needs, here are our wants. We have to like pay the power bill. So you are not able to get a prom dress. Like that's how it is. So from there, it's really stemmed. It was like a catalyst for me to fall into finance more or less, where I was trying to understand my money situation as a teenager and then my early adulthood. And that's really where it like came from when you look at all these different like lived experiences. So when I want to help people cultivate money curiosity is when we're looking at these theological groups that might have very traditional gender roles. When you branch out beyond those, it can often feel scary or you're uncertain or you're not sure of the direction it will go. And understanding that learning about money is an equalizer and that can be seen as a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the party at hand. But for women, I definitely think it's a good thing. There's so much just in your opening story and introduction. I appreciate you willing to to just open it up, open your life and your lived experience up. And money is learning about money is an equalizer. And there's each group's theology about who God is and who God's people are in light of that. And then what are they supposed to do? And 
how rigid or soft is the expectation around adhering to the group rules is such an interesting phenomenon, right? And, and it's, I feel like as we grow up and we mature and we become more aware of the outside world and that there's different groups that actually see that differently and hold the concept of tithing very differently. Like I grew up in a liberal Methodist church and I remember the the plate being passed around, but I never remember any kind of heavy-handed, rigid, tight expectations about giving to the church or what that would mean. And then, you know, I've been in the evangelical community in the past and it was not super rigid, but there was definitely a stronger emphasis on it. And so, you know, when I talk to more folk, more and more folks about it, it's that the child's view of what mom and dad are doing or not doing, what they can have or not have. And so I'm curious, what was that like for you as a little girl when you heard you can't have a prom dress and, you know, we've got to pay for the utility bills and like, yeah, there's a, maybe there's a real practical, like from an adult perspective, but as a child growing up or we're paying our tithe, but we can't get food. Like, what were you feeling? What were you thinking as a little girl as that was all going on? I think what it did is it made me adult faster. So those types of conversations, which I think are absolutely important with children, but the dichotomy or the decision tree process of prioritization of certain things like placed on a teenager is sometimes difficult when you're looking at an entire household. And also what you mentioned with the prioritization of tithing. So within the Mormon community, if you want to uphold and be able to receive your temple recommend, they do ask a question if you're a full-time payer, which means 10%. Where I joked earlier is some people say it's off of gross. Some people say it's off of net. So there's not necessarily a consensus there of like what percentage it is. In the past, I paid it off of taxable income. So the last line item on my tax form, but uh-huh. for someone else, it could be a totally, like I've been told you're, you're wrong. You know, it's off of gross. So it's interesting when you see this kind of like money narratives that happen within an organization. And one thing I feel about the Mormon church is like, I definitely felt educated in the way uh-huh. they have personal finance classes. You understand the dynamics of money. It really does come from the spirituality component of giving back to the higher power. Mm-hmm. But right. in practicality, sometimes it's it's difficult when you're faced with these different life challenges that happen. So for me, I feel like it made me adult faster. I don't necessarily feel like I was a kid in a lot of situations. So I also... I grew up doing sports and I was really dedicated to gymnastics at the time. And so I did gymnastics for eight years and I would spend 20 to 30 hours a week outside of school as a young woman, a young girl. And at one point my parents couldn't afford it because it's expensive. And so I would literally mop the floors. I would clean the gym in order to pay for part of my tuition and part of my, uh, or my tuition. And I think that's kind of the grittiness that I take moving forward, which I appreciate. However, I'm like, should I, you know, like it's hard to say one way or the other, especially as I'm raising two young kids myself. It's like, part of me is like, okay, I should make this a little bit challenging. And like, you have to earn this. And then part of me is like an abundance mindset. Like 
yeah, you can have it. You can have what you want. So it's, it's still this dichotomy between me of the frugality that ran through my family and ran through the theological, cultural commentary that was happening in my life versus kind of this new money mindset, new abundance mentality and thinking through, Hey, I can have more than what I've ever had before. And I can earn more and I can have, I can be more, I can have the things that I want. I don't, I can offer this to my child so that they don't have to, you know, worry if they get a prom dress or not. So there's so many elements in there, but Ultimately, to answer your question, I felt like it made me adult much faster. Yeah. I, you know, thinking about that and thinking about like you're raising kids, I'm raising kids. It sounds like you're raising them in relatively more affluence than what you grew up in. The same is true for me. And it's something that I hear from so many of our peers is like, well, you know, part of the adversity in my life made me have to work hard to get the things that I want. And so, like, do I just make it easy for them now? And then what does that teach them? And yet, like part of the reason why I work so hard is to try to make life easier for the next generation. And so it does kind of create this bit of a bind and some ambivalence, doesn't it? About how do we raise strong, well-money-minded kids that also don't have to live with the fear of like, will I get a prom dress or not? Will I get... Do yeah. I have to make a choice between going out to the movies with my friends or staying home? I think it's making them empowered with their decision-making process and also being clear with things that happen. So for instance, if my kids get money from anyone as a gift, I automatically invest it into a 529 for them. And I'll, I'll make the joke, my kids are five and two, but I'll be like, hey, you know what you're buying for your birthday? You're buying an index mutual fund. And you know, like they don't know what that means, but I'm starting it's it early. Great. I mean, we pay out of our dollars for them to get a toy from Target or something like that, but starting that money conversation early and what my parents go to hopefully therapy for, let's hope they start going. But what I go to therapy for and what my kids will go to therapy for, it's going to be, that's a wild ride. Like we don't really know. So I feel like as long as we're doing our best and we're trying to educate them, but as a financial mm. practitioner, an educated client is my favorite type of client, right? Someone who comes in and they're like, I've tried to do this on my own. I've researched this. I'd love to hand this over to you. I feel like with our kids, like an educated kid is going to be your best financial future. I think that they would yeah. be like, dang, I wish my parents would have taught me more about finances or do my taxes. Right. So I think it's a hard thing to do. And I, I really, don't want them to have to adult hard at young ages. So that's where I have more of a different money script that I want to instill in them. However, like how they perceive it, they're, they're humans, yeah. right? So how they're going to perceive it, I don't necessarily have full control over that, but I'm going to do the best Ooh. that I can. There's so much wisdom in what you're saying, Lindsay, and I love it because that's, I think there's so much anxiety in parents about trying to do this money thing right with their kids. At least where I've landed is like, I'm going to give it my best shot and give it my best intention. But where I want to be different or an open is when they become adults or become more adult-like. And they come to me and say, you know, when you did this or you didn't do this, it hurt me. I felt like you didn't miss, you misunderstood me. It left me with shame, whatever that is. And to be able to honor and acknowledge that that was actually their experience, right? And I think that that's where a lot of parents 
really struggle is when their kids come to them and say, well, why didn't you teach me more about investing? Why didn't you talk more openly? Why did you and dad fight so much about money? Why did you and mom, you know, whatever it is, like you can't even have that reflective healing conversation. And so I think, you know, you're talking about like, well, I'm in therapy now and I, and my kids will probably be in therapy in the future. And I, I can't control what they'll fully be in therapy for, but I'm just going to trust that it's going to be there. But there's, it sounds like this uh, acceptance, like I'm human, I'm doing the best I can. And at the same time, there's going to be some stuff that I probably miss and it'll be okay. I feel like, yeah, we're all trying our best, but a couple of things that I've picked up from some coworkers and friends and colleagues were a couple of like money tricks that they've done with their kids as their kids got older. So once their kids got jobs in the summer, they would say, okay, however much money you make in the summer and you have left over, I'll double that at the end of the summer. So some of their kids would still spend all their money and some would save it. And then they would, if I had a thousand dollars left over at the end of the summer, I'm going to have 2000 in my account. So they were teaching some of the investing growth mindset in that regard. Another consideration was a coworker would buy a car for their kid, but make them pay for the insurance. And so if they got a speeding ticket or if their premium were to increase, like if they had a good grades and now they don't have good grades, if their premium increased in some way, then they were financially responsible. So if they couldn't afford the premium or if they couldn't subsidize it in some way, then it kind of taught some of those responsibility skills. I know for my household, my parents called it the quote unquote transition plan. And so they would slowly introduce more things to do, but like you're going to start paying for your phone bill and you're going to start paying for your car insurance. And now you're going to take out the car loan and you're going to pay for the internet or something like that. I saw a TikTok the other day of someone who was saying, once your kids get to, let's say they live at home, you charge them rent. And you say it's like $250 a month or something like that. And then when they decide to move out, you give them all that money back. So you're like creating this savings account for them so that they can get on the right step. So I think there's creative ways to integrate it into your children's experience. I think it's just going from a realm of doing your best. But obviously you want to have good financial knowledge and good financial advice. So partner with a financial advisor if you don't feel confident. And the second one is if you need to work out kind of your money narratives or your financial education, there's great people out there. I know at the college, we have a resource called Know Yourself, Grow Your Wealth, which is around understanding your money narratives and some of the basics of financial acumen. And so those are a couple of things where it's like, oh, that's what you as a a parent, or if you want to be a future parent, or if you know someone who's parenting kids, that's a way to set the money narrative. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, culturally, there is this groundswell maybe of like financial literacy and understanding that it's more than the numbers, it's about the psychology. And like, we're starting to get to a fuller picture of what it takes to really be healthy at the individual or family level, right? Like, what does that mean? I think you know, you're talking about well, my parents had the air quote transition plan. And I, I like that idea. There's developmentally like increasing responsibility. And I, I have a 12 year old and 
it's been interesting, you know, last year or two, he's talking about like, well, I want to buy my friend's birthday gift with my money. I want to do this. Right. And so it's, there's also that piece of like listening to your kid and where are they at and being able to start taking on that next level of responsibility. Because I think most kids, if you have a core trust in your kid's goodness and capability, want to take on more responsibility. And it's our, our job as parents to kind of foster and scaffold that along. Absolutely. And you also have to, when I go back to like gender roles and think about this is how young men look at money versus how young women look at money and girls and boys is very different. So girls confidence in math peaks at age nine and typically they'll stop raising their hands in STEM related classes by the eighth grade. And if you look at articles that are written towards women versus men, two thirds of articles written to women are about budget, save, spend less, don't drink the latte, et cetera, versus the articles written to men are about grow, invest, build. So one thing that I'm working on a project is around writing a children's book for little girls about money so that they can develop different money narratives. And the cool thing about my household is that because I grew up with so many brothers is that we didn't have typical gender roles, right? Any right. A chore or assignment that my brothers did, I had to do and vice versa. So it really has shaped me to the woman I am where I'm like, yeah, I could totally do that. Right. Right. So I think it's really important when you're thinking about little girls, little boys, non-binary children, et cetera, is just making sure that they have the money narrative of build, grow, invest, that money is power, that they can build wealth. You can make generational wealth changes because if you like follow, if they're just following what culturally and pop culturally happens, then they're the money narrative that they might be instilling or at school or whatever. So it's just making sure that that like gender is an equation in there and just making sure that you're cognizant of that. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I'm coming back to this opening line, cultivating money curiosity. And I feel like this is something that will be the theme for today's interview. It's just like, if we think that we figured it all out, we're probably going to end up stuck. But if we keep questioning and having curiosity about how money works and we keep looking for different angles for understanding how money works, we get a much fuller picture of what's going on. And I know when we were talking for the interview at breakfast, you had shared this research about the media money messages and how gendered they are. And it, it was like, well, no, duh, as soon as you said it, but like it was completely oblivious to me before you shared that. And so I think that's the spirit of, I mean, that's the spirit of part of this podcast is, I'm endlessly curious about how do I help couples talk about money better? And one lang- one angle of that is internalized gender roles that block couples from talking about it because it's like, 
well, my job as a woman is to do fill in the blank uh, with money. Yep. And the man is the same thing. And this is where I don't want to be prescriptive and say, well, this is what men is or this is what women's are. But just stop and listen. Stop. Stop the podcast for a minute. Don't, not yet. Give me the, let me give you an instruction. But try this exercise for yourself. The role of money for women is, and then just write it out. Whatever comes up, no judgment. See what you come up with. The role for men is with money, write it out. See what happens, what comes up. No judgment. You'll be flabbergasted at what comes out of you because we all are just sponges for taking in all kinds of different ideas and often conflicting ideas about what men or women are supposed to do because we're doing it kind of at the cultural level. We're doing it at the community level. We're doing it at the family level. Like, And there's not congruency across those different levels. Right. And when you look at subconscious or conscious bias, right? But we're talking about pop culture. I was getting my hair done the other day and Confessions of a Shopaholic is on, right? Which is around uh, uh. Um, a woman who has too much credit card debt, which at the time she had, what, less than $10,000 worth of credit card debt. I'm like, people just, that's like status quo or more. Right. And how so much of this movie was just stemmed around her money ignorance and how she had to sell all her things in order to find a new money mindset versus you parallel that to like the big short or wolf of wall street. So it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh. this is what like men are being portrayed as is like these alpha people who are making so much money. And this woman's trying to pay off $10,000 worth of debt. So it's like those gender roles are like seen in pop culture. They're seen in our subconscious. And even in my own household, I'm still working through those. So I'm, my partner is a man. We've been married um, seven years. I have taken ownership of pretty much all of the financial picture. And it was so interesting. I kid you not, the, today, right before this lunch, my spouse pulls me aside and he says, you know what? I can't let you own this whole thing anymore because he was at a work retreat and this person came in to pitch an investment opportunity. And typically what he he'll do is he'll record it and then, or he'll invite me to the pitch and then I will bet it. I'll see the prospectus. I'll go through the analysis. I'll see how much cash we have on hand. I'll see how it works in our cash flow. I'll see how it works in the financial plan, the retirement plan. And then I'll be like green light, red light, yellow light. Right. So in like a traditional household, that's usually reversed. And so this has been helpful for me and my process is like, I need to bring him in more even though I'm the primary financial person here. And I like pride myself because it's like less than 10% of households are like championed by heterosexual couples are championed by women on the financial front, especially if you look at a younger ages too. Wait, whoa, hold on. Sorry to interrupt. 10%. I think it might even be fewer, but yeah, it's like in the teens percentage, teens percentage, maybe less. Yeah, it's like really small where the woman champions the investment portion of the household built a lot of the times right. like women will do the spending budget spending right consumer spending. right yes but that and this is exactly what you're talking about right that which plays into what the research is saying the genderized the gender genderized that's we're not tenderizing meat here sorry my language <laughs> that's okay the gender normed roles like like there's this feedback loop like the media says women do the spending and the budgeting in the household like day to day and the men do the investing long-term and yet it creates this perfect feedback. So what you're saying is like, hey, I have the whole picture in mind. And I'm interrupted you. So I want to 
back to your story. So your husband comes to you, he asks this, you're working through this in your head, like, oh, I've been running this whole show and I feel really proud of it. And now all of a sudden he's coming to me and saying, just today, wait a second here, I need to be more of a participant. So tell me a little bit about that. Right. I think it's reframing the conversation for us. So we've done an activity from the book, Fair Play. If you haven't read it and you're in a coupled partnership, highly recommend read. It's by Evrupsky, I want to say. I just ordered the card game today. Yeah. I just ordered, literally just ordered the card game. So it's coming by Amazon this afternoon, I think. Perfect. Well, you can get out your cards. So these cards, what they do is they take a hundred domestic tasks and the person who has ownership of that specific card is responsible for what they consider conception. So the idea, the planning portion, and then the execution. So typically in a lot of households, you the person that is more integrated with the domestic tasks, it's typically like an 80-20. You want it yeah. to be at least 80-20. It could be a little bit higher, but often partners will help with just the execution part. So like an example is putting groceries away where it's like, yeah. I had to make a grocery list. I had to go through the fridge. I had to reconcile like what our kids' preferences are this week. See what uh, it this like. week, today. Right? Today, like go to the store, buy the groceries. And then they're like, oh, I put them away. Like, yeah, this is how I'm thinking about it from a financial aspect is like, I own the finances card, but they also have one for insurance. They have one for budgeting, saving. So they divide those into different categories, but like currently I hold all of those categories. So in, in my mind, I'm like, oh, what if I divvied out the insurance portion? And then that fostered a conversation. But when we look at kind of my upbringing, so I grew up in a Mormon household. My spouse also grew up in a Mormon household. Both were in like similar non-affluent households. There are eight kids in his family and like his money belief system and what he learned or what he did not learn really had affected like when we came into our marriage and how we navigate money. And I can't come here like as a know-it-all all the time. Cause I'm like, yeah, of course, according to all of this information that I have spent the last decade of my life dedicated to building, like I can't make the assumption that he knows what an active ETF. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. what's the and beta of this active ED- Yeah, no. Right. So, uh, all the fancy words. Yes. All the fancy jargon that y'all pay us for. But, but really, it is about having that conversation. And so, when I look at this, this is my spouse like bidding to be a part of that conversation. And this gives me an opportunity mm-hmm. to educate there. Right. But in a typical heterosexual couple, it's typically reverse. So for any of you men out there who are listening, let's pause and see how much ownership, what does that look like? Because even if we look at financial advisors, like women financial advisors, when we look at money managers, so people who manage funds, like typically women money managers are earning out earning like beta, right? yeah. I mean, alpha, yep. they're creating more alpha yep. than their, their counterparts. And so women might self-select out of these just based on cultural things. I'm not good at math. STEM's not my thing. I can't even balance a credit card. How am I going to learn how to manage an investment portfolio? But I always joke, I'm like, if you can follow the drama in a season of The Bachelor or Selling Sunset, 
then you have the skills necessary in order to understand the relational <laughs> dynamics of investing, right? Like if I invest here, this is what's going to happen. If I do this, this is what's going to happen. And so it's like, it's really about understanding those levers. And so I feel as though like women often will put this facade on themselves, like discounting their abilities. And you absolutely have the intellectual aptitude, capacity. You just got to put that, that curiosity, that little bit of effort at any point, any one of these mutual fund managers, hedge fund managers, billion dollar firms, et cetera. At some point, whoever started that didn't know what a stock was, didn't know what a bond was, right? Like we all have no to learn. One, no one is born knowing what a stock and bond is. Not a single person has come out of the womb and been like, give me the S&P 500 index fund with the low expense ratio. Said no baby no ever. One. So, Right, like it's learnable, but we have these experiences in our growing up. And so many different experiences, you know, the religious, theological lenses that get added on. The math ability, right? That's, you know, one of those fancy research words, but it's like someone's perception of how good am I at math? And they use that as a proxy for how good I'm going to be at money. And the reality is there's a lot more people good at math and money math is actually not so complicated. So by the way, if you were in high school calculus, even if you failed high school calculus, you can still do money math. But if you made it through like eighth grade math, you got money math nailed. Like down. Yes. And because look, I learned how to calculate compound interest by hand, but you don't need to know how to calculate compound interest by hand. There's wonderful calculators. And as long as you understand the concept, let the computer do the rest. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really like understanding, leveraging the tools that you have and really challenging some of these learned experiences or biases that you yeah. have, right? Like, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel like I wouldn't be good at this or I am good at this? And could I give up this role? And what does it look like in our partnership? And it was so funny. This this morning, I was chatting with a woman at the gym and she was like, yeah, I just like, I need a financial advisor. Like me and my partner, we just like argue a lot about it. And I just need someone to tell me how much I need to save for a down payment. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably also how they feel about money and how you feel about money. And do they want to purchase <laughs> a house? Things. And do you, you know, like there's all of these dynamics that are happening behind it, but having that self-awareness of like, Hey, I should partner with someone. And also I was like proud of this person. Cause she was like, I need to do this. Right. So right. especially for women, that's the thing that's like, I want to empower money Queens, like people who are confident that in your ability or get educated and then find someone else who can help you, right? Like I can read a lot of stuff from WebMD, but going to my doctor is like, what's important, right? It's better for all parties, right? So we were talking about another great leader in the field that you know, and I'm just getting to know Hannah Moore and I'm going through some of her training right now. And what she said in one of her trainings today that I love, and I'm curious what you think is, I love when clients come to me and their financial life is messy. They don't, people don't need financial planning when they've got everything figured out. They need it when they don't have things figured out and they've got loose ends and they've got questions and they've got concerns and they've got disagreements. That's when we need financial planning. I'm curious. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think the messier, the more opportunities for the planner, but also understanding that most clients have messy situations. 
whether it's credit card debt, whether it's student loans, whether it's not saved enough for retirement, whether it's you have parents trying to inflict things on children or children trying to inflict things on parents. I was part of a training today around uh, like how to better help prospecting or closing, converting clients, right? And so some of the objections these advisors were getting and someone was saying like, the kid's too involved. And it's like, well, where does that come from? And what does that look like? So super messy. Finances, like without proper care, can be really messy. And that's okay. And we welcome that. Like, and know that if your finances are messy, like it's okay. That's what housekeepers are for. That's what what we do. We organize, we get things together. We like we get you on the right track. We get you on the cleaning schedule that works for you. We get you like all squared away. So there's no shame in messiness, but I, I feel like you should feel empowered to make a change. Like that's where I get frustrated with clients is that they'll know everything's awry, but they're like, I'm, I can't. And it's like, there are so many options out there for what we consider like the mass affluent market. So people with less than a million dollars of assets, there are so many different advisor resources out there. There's subscription model, retainer model, there's pro bono. I, I volunteer at one It's called savvy ladies. They'll do pro bono for financial planning topics for any woman. So it's like, it's legitimately complimentary. So I'm like, there are options out there and it's okay to come up messy. It's like, the first time you go to therapy and oh. I feel so uncomfortable. And then like a little bit down the road, you're like, I'm bawling about my fifth grade teacher not advocating for me. And it's like, okay, it's okay. We can be messy because that's a whole human experience. Like <laughs> we are like, we're spiritual, intellectual, physical, uh, environmental, social, we're occupational, financial, emotional. emotional beings. Like we're, we're all, all of the these things. things. And they're all interacting exponentially with finances. Right. Right. But finances exacerbate different areas. Oh, good or bad. Say more about that. Right. So like, I've heard the phrase money's a magnifier of the underlying issues. And I'm going to own this today with you because I feel so safe with you. All the other thousands of people that will ever listen to this. I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to trust Lindsay that she can hang with this. I used to hate that phrase. I've learned something. When I hate a phrase, it usually means it's because it's so damn true about me. <laughs> and like my need to have more money and more status and more success is directly related to my own insecurity that I had no idea I even had. Now, I've been in therapy for a long time. So like that's working itself out, not fully worked out, but I'm walking more upright these days. So yeah, I mean, money is a magnifier of whatever is going on underneath both good and bad. That is how I feel. And thank you for trusting me with that. And when you think of all the intersectionality of like relationships intersect with money and emotions do, your job does, your physical activity does, your intellectual capacity does, your spirituality for me, right? Theology was so, so important in my money narrative thus far and still is important, but I look at it from a different lens than I have in the past. And understanding that my faith journey impacts my financial journey, good or bad. So it's like, 
understanding that there's so many elements that are happening and money can amplify good or bad. Can we talk about your faith journey and what's happening there? Because that like, that's such a huge topic for me. And it's, it's maybe a chicken or the egg, like which one begets the other, but let's looking at it, starting from the side of how our changing faith journey changes our relationship with money. Like, how are you, I would, how are you changing the way you understand religion and spirituality? How is that changing for you? So my money narrative is deeply related to spirituality in the sense of my worthiness for my ability to commune with the Lord in the way that I wanted to was contingent on my giving of 10%, which I definitely believe in like giving back and giving back can look very differently. So there are in the Mormon religion, there are a number of temple recommend questions and some of them you can be a little bit gray. Yeah. Like, Yes or no, you can be in the middle ground. But for that one, it, there's a hard line. It's like, yes or no, are you full type payer or not? And when I look at, there's many aspects of the religion that I absolutely adore and I love. And there's many aspects that I am deconstructing and building my own opinion on. Because when you look at, you know, I was in Utah in a subset of Salt Lake City in a small group mm-hmm. with very homogenistic community. I really didn't expand beyond like what I could see or hear or feel. And so I have moved out of the state and that's really kind of opened a different perspective. One thing I'll say is like the messiness of that middle part where my spouse and I have, we're on different paths with our faith journeys. We're on different opinions on tithing. We're on different opinions on those aspects, but having the open line of communication is really important for us. And so since I'm the money manager and my spouse still wants to pay tithing, like I'm still responsible for completing that tithing. And I feel comfortable in that role because like my client wanted to do a a QCD, a a qualified charitable donation. I'm like, I'm going to do that for my client. You know, I'm going to do that for my spouse. But it's been really interesting to see that money narrative. And what was challenging for me is just women's roles in the funds that were that I was giving the money to. So mm-hmm. a lot of the times the money will stay within your church congregation. And so me paying my tithing is going to help someone have food at their house or pay their bills within my church congregation, which is assigned based on your geographical area and also based on your marriage status. So we have wards that are called family wards. Those are for people, they can be non-married people, people with families. And then they have single adult wards, which is for people who are single. So you have this congregation and then how are women playing a role in this? And in the current structure, you have a church leader, they're called a bishop and they're allocating the funds how they see fit. And so for me, it's like, well, like I don't need an opinion on everything, but when you get to if there's money left over, it's going up and up and up. And now they have a $150 billion fund. I'm sitting here like, well, how many women and how many people of color and how many people are like helping disseminate those dollars and buying Amazon web services or a large portion in that is like helping Zion. I don't know. So like, those are the questions that I have, especially when it comes to women's roles. 
And I think that's where a lot of my faith component like falls in there is just, I see gender men, women, non-binary folk, whatever, like there's equality across the board. And I want that to, I feel like money is a space that where you can have equality, right? Like we can be paid the same for jobs. Like, like if I have the same skill set as someone else, I can be paid the same. I can invest 10%. Yeah. I can do this. Right. So when I see this within a theological group that other Christian denominations where you have that prosperity complex, like give everything and everything will work out. And oh, they have a private jet messy. and I don't have a private jet. It gets really <laughs> messy. So <laughs> yeah. the cool thing about the Mormon church is that like, if you really do need, like if you have needs, it will help out. Like that fed me at one point, but as part of my journey, that's where I, I'm kind of like working through is just, I feel like women have the ability to have a seat at the table and based on like how the structure works and correct me if I'm wrong, anyone from the higher ups in the church, um, yeah. um, give me a phone um, call. Look me up. I'm on LinkedIn. Look me up. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. Lindsay Lewis, <laughs> MBA, CHFC, CFP. <laughs> but that's where I'm kind of at with my faith journey. It's just like money came as part of that. And I remember, so like I've been going through some old videos because I was, my son just graduated from pre-K. And so I'm going through old videos, like trying to like, like put together a memory package or something like that. And I saw one of my like Instagram videos that I had posted when the first whistleblower made a comment about the church having, it was a hundred billion dollar fund in 2019. Now it's like 150. I don't know. And I posted a video because I was definitely like at a different place with my faith at that time. And I was like, don't worry about it. It's God's plan. Like, we don't know, like we need all the facts. And then like, now I've, I like look back at that video, like with much kinder eyes. Cause I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, like my perspective has changed, but also then there was stuff that came out where they like paid a fine to the SEC and they like did all this. Stuff. So it's like, things are happening. And I think you also have to be respectful of people are on their like own timetable. So like yeah. where I was at four years ago versus where I'm at today, where I'll be in four years, hopefully I'm like even better of a human in four years, but that's kind of how like money and faith and how it's tied together through tithing. But that's why I think cultivating this money curiosity is so important, especially in theological groups and especially for women that are in very traditional gender rolled organizations or groups. It's just knowing that you have intellectual capacity, aptitude, ability that you can be good at finances without being greedy or if being greedy is bad, then like, why do you have 150 bill? Like, so it's like you have more GDP than entire countries. <laughs> I joke, but but seriously. Yeah. So that's what's yeah. really important to me. And I hope resonates with your audience. It's just really that curiosity component. Right. Why do I feel this way? How can I learn more? How can I instill this with my kids? Like, what does that look like? Well, I would add, where do these ideas come from? Who are the originators of these ideas? And that, for me at least, when I went through the my own religious deconstruction period, it was dark. It was very dark days. And it's not fun. It's not like 
for me, I think about like, I think everyone needs to go through one. And it's like the last thing I want anyone to have to go through. Right. But I feel like the journey of maturity and moral development requires us asking those deep questions. And you know, you use some words that I just really stood out to me. It was, I'm not getting your words right now, but it, what I heard was something in the lines of, I learned to think for myself, right? Like yep. I learned to question the teachings and that's, that's dangerous and risky. And in a lot of groups I had on a similar channel, I had a reporter ask me recently about like cryptocurrency and there's this, you know, like whole group of people are like, basically don't question what's happening here. Just believe it and go with it. And I just think any group, whether it's a religious group, a political group or a financial group that's saying, don't question the belief, just trust it. Be very aware and be very cautious because that's not a very safe environment to operate in. It feels safe initially because it gives you this sense of security. Like they've got it figured out. It's okay. They're telling you it's okay. But at some point, like things don't start all adding up and you ask the questions and you realize like, hey, this is a human institution too. I think that's what's challenging is like you have the human element where like if you believe in a higher power or God, like perhaps they're perfect, but humans are still humans. And even do follow a perfect God are still humans. Right, right. They're valuable. Like they they make mistakes. And yeah, it's so interesting because within Mormonism, like we always, we talk about Joseph Smith, who's one of our first prophet, which we believe restored. Yeah. Jesus Christ Church today. Right. And it was stemmed on him asking a question. But then if I like ask a question, it's not the same. So that's where it's like, I get a little <laughs> cynical. It's like, okay, like, does it depend on the question? Like, where do women's rights fall within this organization? And yeah, it's a lot to unpack there, but I think it's that curiosity component. And asking the questions and trying it out. But I think, you know, as we bring this conversation to close, kind of going back a little bit in time, you and your husband are in your own process of change, right? Like, and like you're actively asking questions about who am I, who is the church, what I believe, and like getting increasing clarity, it sounds like. And like you talked about, you know, and my husband's still in this place where he wants to pay the tithe and I'm the money manager. And so I'm going to do that. And so it's like, I thought that was just so beautiful of like holding space for him, for you as you work through this. And it presumably it's not destructive for your family to be paying 10%, right? It's like, okay, well, we can figure out that. You know, and at some point, maybe there are other scenarios where it's not safe to hold space for your partner while each of you are in your change process, right? But if you can hold space for each other, I mean, my wife has been very patient with me as I deeply questioned my own religious beliefs. What did that mean for her? And and that's a conversation for another day. But but it's as for me, at least on the journey of financial freedom, it necessitated me asking questions of my own religious tradition. And who am I? Who is this tradition? What do these things say about each other? And then because I feel stuck. So it's definitely holding space for the other person. And I'm grateful for my partner to be patient and understanding with me because it is super dark. And some days I'm really sad. Like, most of the time I'm pretty fun and all vivacious or whatever, but this process has been really challenging because you take like three decades of learned experience and I'm rethinking what that looks like. And then if your partner wants to keep their decades of that experience and I want a different one, it, it really is about this conversation and navigating it together, but like holding and 
lots of people maybe don't like therapy talk here, but like holding space for the person. And, and what, what I mean by that is allowing them the autonomy to have their own lived experience with their current situation. And what that relates in my life is, yeah, my spouse pays 10% of his portion of income. And then I decide what I do with my portion of income. So that's kind of like the compromise that we've come to. And here's the thing. I'm like, I don't know where I'll be in six months on this faith. I'm like, I consider myself PIMO physically and mentally out. My partner is like totally in. So, and then how you raise your kids and all this dynamic, but it's just understanding that people are learning at their own rate and at their own time. And then with their own experiences, like my lived experiences of my money and my relationship trauma and my gender, the gender roles and misogyny that I've experienced and ageism, like that makes me think one way versus someone else who might have not had that experience. And so that's what I mean by holding space is like allowing them to live what they're living. I think for me, one of the things that was kind of a, such a, a grounding force was, I guess there's a part of me that's an, an academic, right? A researcher, I've grown into that. Heck, I was a BC high school jock in high school. And now, you know, I'm a nerd and read research papers. So I don't know what happened somewhere. But you know, James Fowler is a, was a religious scholar and he studied people's faith journeys. And he found this very common pattern of reaching a crisis of faith. And he he put it in stages, right? And he said, it's like between stages three and four, where we go through what he called a crisis of faith or a dark night of the soul. I think other people, other people have used that phrase before him. But for me, just having that framework of knowing like, oh, this is actually normal. And like, you know, his argument was not everybody goes through this stage three to stage four transformation, but people that go through a deep period of questioning and challenging everything, everything, and then everything again will eventually come out on the other side with a deeper sense of resolve and meaning and purpose. And what their belief system actually looks like may have some similar elements, but will often be radically different. But they can also show up in the world in a way that they're less flappable. Like it's like kind of what you're talking about is like, yeah, he's not in the same place as me. And that's okay. I mean, it'd be nice if we were more in the same place, but he's in his own journey. I respect him. So anyhow, it's... I'm so glad that we've been able to talk about this. It's talking about religion and spirituality and money is a hot topic and you've made it so comfortable and safe to go there. So I appreciate that so much, Lindsay. I appreciate you allowing me the space to tell my story. And I really hope that something resonates with someone, whether it's around kids or religion or women or gender roles. And really, I want to help influence finance and cultivate money curiosity. So if people want to connect with you more, we already kind of jokingly said you're on LinkedIn, but are there other good ways for people to connect with you and the work you're doing in the world? Yeah. So I'm at Influencing Finance on pretty much all social platforms and then the Finfluencer on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. Send me a message. Happy to have conversations, point you in the right direction. I like to be a resource. So my my full-time job is really about connecting and getting people to the right places they need to go. That's awesome. Lindsay, thank you so much for your journey. And I look forward to our paths continuing to cross as we are both mutually interested in helping other people on their financial journey. I look forward to it. Let's change the world. 
Let's do it. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.